0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. With me, if you're awake, if you're alive, if you're grateful. I uh, would love for you to join me in uh, Mark chapter 1 as we just kind of get into um, some scripture this morning. If you're just joining us, we're typically making our way through whole books of the Bible left to right. And we are uh, uh, today in uh, the Gospel Mark in a series um, called the, the Suffering Servant. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, I was just even reminiscing, even before we get into that scripture, of just uh, Hannah, somebody was talking about prayer this morning, and just Hannah in the Bible who is, who is barren, and, and just that picture of not only Sarah, but many others in, in the Bible of um, prayer for life, uh, reminding us that life is a gift, and the picture of Hannah, like, what, what are we doing? Really, we're kind of dedicating the parents more so than we are the babies because the babies are going to be chilling. But the parents um, are just taking that posture of prayer uh, that, that when you see that little boop, 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 boop on the uh, machine and, and you get the ultrasound for the first time and when you hear the cries for the first time and when you hold the baby, there's only one recollection that you can make of all that chaos and, and joy at the same time. It's just a gift. And, and so then I think there's this moment when, when we when we read and contemplate The Hannah is all of our stories, no matter where we are in in spiritual life or physical life, that that when we understand that we receive something as a gift, one of the best things a believer can do is just offer that gift back to God. One of the best things, even if it's a car, let alone, you know, a human life that comes into our house, like, let me just dedicate this. Let me offer this back to the Lord. It's one of the best things to do with a gift, no matter if it's a a child or anything else. But uh, anyways, we're in this series called The Suffering Servant, and there's four different accounts, gospel Eyewitness accounts, biographies of Jesus, uh, because it's like if you interrogate somebody on the street of a crime, they'd all say something different about the same event. So there's lots of the same stories and parables and scriptures, but they're all different interpretations or different viewpoints, rather, to show different things. First of all, that Matthew understands that, that Jesus is a king. And, uh, and John is, is here to, to, to illustrate and, and to proclaim that Jesus is, is God, and that he's, he's not less of a God because he's a king, or he's not less of a king because he's God, that he is God and he's king. And that Luke comes to say that, uh, that not only is he God, that he's also a man. And Mark is the counterpoint, really, to Matthew's argument that not only is he a king, he's also a servant. That he didn't come to be served, but to be a servant and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Serving wasn't an activity, it was an identity. There's two different people that can serve in two different ways in the kids' ministry or your job or doing whatever they do, right? but they're doing it with different intent. There, there, there's there's a, a way to serve so that I can be elevated, or I can serve because I'm just a servant. And Jesus was not using servanthood as a means to an end. It was the end. He lived as a servant. He healed as a servant. He talked as a servant. He led as a servant. He died as a servant. He's seated at the right hand of the Father's day, still a servant. It wasn't an activity. It was an agenda. It was an identity of everything that he did. And so uh, we just have three short little parables to look at um, today um, as we just consider um, kind of a little bit of a rift uh, that it, we're starting to see within the narrative around the healings and teachings of Jesus is two different camps of followers and Pharisees. And these two different little parables help us understand the difference. Um, I'm not from around here. Uh, I don't know if you thought that I was or if I looked like that. I'm actually from Hong Kong, so I can't be the president of the United States. It was a big, big sad revelation for me that I could never be the president of the United States as the Constitution says. Um, I'm also not from this state. I was from uh, New York for the first 10 years of my life, and then I moved to Indiana, and then eventually you know, down, down here in the south and although uh, I've been here for 20 years, I still feel like a foreigner. I don't know what it is. Some of the way you look at me or the way that I look. I don't feel like I'm quite from here. And, um, and uh, I, you know, I came um, to faith. Neither my uh, family, my parents are believers. Um, I, was, uh, I was more or less, I, I would say flirt to convert, right? My, my, I followed my wife Kyra there and ended up in the youth group. But ultimately, I believe it was the Holy Spirit, gave my life to Jesus just in a front yard with an open Bible. It wasn't a big conference or anything, just the Lord reaches us in different ways. And so when I moved down here, I was a little bit like Elf going to New York City, like, I can't believe how many Christians are down here. I can't believe how many churches are down here. This is amazing. You're a Christian? Me too. You know, I was my attitude for the first three years. And so, uh, but because in Indiana, like, you could meet, you know, just like a 20-year-old could meet just like a 50-year-old dude in the drive-thru of Starbucks who has nothing in common, political differences, economic differences, all sorts of different uh, distinctions and differences. But if you're a Christian in the North, like, you're a Christian in the North. And if you have Christ in common, that's everything that you need. <laughs> Because there's not, pick your denomination, pick your preacher, pick your preference, pick the color of the carpet. It's like, you're a Christian, we're friends. You know, we got to hang together here, okay? And so that's a blessing, and it's, and, it's, and it's a benefit, and it's a curse at the same time. And so, you know, coming down here, I remember I, like, ran into, like, Jim Thompson, the Fellowship Greenville pastor. Was like, my first guy with all the tattoos, if you guys know who that is. Uh, and, uh, and was just like, man, it's a Christian year. We should just start a Bible study, <laughs> And so I just started this little Bible study in my house, and everybody kind of came to it and all that kind of thing. And I just I realized that... Christianity in the South, I started to, the taste and the texture, Christianity in the South was different from where I was coming from. Christianity in the South is different than other areas. I don't know if you've ever been out of the area, but it's just different. It's just different. Christianity, culture is different. Christianity is different. And I, I noticed um, people are nice down here. I mean, isn't that what the northern, golly, they talk to you. They're just, even the car rental people are pretty nice to you. You know, they're nice to you for no reason, right? So, so, so I'm not, I love it here, right? But every, it's like, okay, here's the thing. When you pick where you live, you pick the idols you live next to. Like you live to Korea, Tokyo, like there's going to be problems wherever you go. So people are people. Right? But identifying those idols and identifying where we live is an important thing in terms of cultural context. And I, and I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but there's a, there's a subtle, it's beneath the surface, it would take a coffee more than a handshake, but there's a sadness when it comes to people's recollection of church down here sometimes. There's a sweetness that I grew up here, and this is my, my, my youth pastor, and this is record, but there's also this melancholy, this kind of mixed feelings of, of, of what it means to be, you know, in, in the church, you know, in the South. And, 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 and I've, I've had to grow sensitive to that because before I'd be like, man, pick up your bootstraps. I never got drugged to church. I love church. Church is great. What are you complaining about, right? But there's sadness because sometimes when it is that people say church, what they're really meaning is they're, they're, they're engaging not just church, but they're engaging culture, a Christian culture. They're experiencing the building and the deacons and uh, the, the Kiwanis and the youth group, but they're not experiencing Christ. And so what is it like for 10 years, or to get, for me to be in maybe your shoes or, or somebody else's shoes, to understand how, what it means for the entirety of your life to go to church without Jesus? Like, it's completely possible in certain areas of religious sectors, because it's popular, to make a church without Jesus, <laughs> to do church without Jesus, maybe in name and, 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 and in moniker, but not in nature. And so, and so here's this fasting question, right? They come to Jesus, and there's this little fasting question. But it's like that Polish kid that I met in middle school named Peter... He was white, and so like, he kind of looked like the rest of the people there, but he was a little bit different. <laughs> he would like, have pierogies at lunch, and he'd just be like, dude, why do you have... You know what I mean? And like, you're waiting for the one thing that's like, you're doing all the same things, but it's like, a little bit different. And that's the distinction we're seeing. There's healings, and you're starting to see this character form, these Pharisees, these, these teachers of the law that are kind of emerging in the character story, and we're going to kind of follow that trace for the next couple of weeks in, in the study. But the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus are different than the followers of the Pharisees. The disciples of Jesus, they talk a little bit different. Like, they read the same Bible. They go to the same places. They care about the same stuff. They try to do good things. Like, the disciples and the Pharisees, at face value from a 30,000 square foot view, they pretty much look pretty much the same, except there's these subtle little differences. You know what I'm talking about? It's these subtle little things, like a disciple of Jesus. It's just like, you start to see it when it costs and when it counts, There's an unbulliedness, unbribed, unwavering, and unfooled thing that the Spirit of God comes on a person, and they're just not here to play games, and you can tell the difference. And so they sing the same songs, and they read the same Bibles, but they're not the same. And so what he's going to say in these parables is three parables. There's a parable about a wedding. There's a parable uh, about uh, um, uh, clothing, materials, clothing, cloth. And then there's a parable about wineskin. And they're all really making the same, same point is that the wedding one is like, well, the disciples, they, they're different because they have a little bit of a different timing. Like both of them fast, but they fast for different reasons and in different timings, so they're the same. They do the same stuff, but they're a little bit different. The clothing thing has to be a material thing because what he's saying is the disciples are different, not just subtly, but deeply. They're made of something. They're built differently. They have a different spirit about them. And then lastly, in terms of the container, their covenant ultimately is different is kind of what he's going to say. So up there on the screen, this is my point, sermon and sentence today, is the Pharisees are not followers. And Pharisees, for maybe the first couple of times that you meet them, are, they do the same things as followers do. But you'd have to spend a little more time with them. If you did, you would want to ask the same question. Like, why do you act a little bit different? You sing the same songs and go to the same places and read the same books, but you do it for a different reason. And something about the texture of your life makes me feel that way. I don't know how to put it to words, so I'm going to ask you about a random question about fasting. And that's because Jesus' response, the parables are basically saying, well, it's not that they uh, are just acting different. They are different. Disciples of Jesus and Pharisees could, are miles apart. They look the same, but they're miles apart on a spiritual level. And underneath the iceberg, it's not just because they act different, they are different. They are spiritual. If you put a spiritual x ray machine on them and turn them over, made in Taiwan, like they're made different and they're from another, they're born from above, is what a Christian is basically doing. It's because they are not just acting different, are different, they, they are made new in Christ. They are made new in Christ. And that's kind of the main point, I think, from these three parables. So here are the parables. Fasting, uh, they, they ask in this fasting question. Verse 18. So now watch this. So John's disciples, who remember, John is Jesus' cousin. Is John a good guy or a bad guy? He's a good guy. So it's not just his buddies that are different. It's just like there's something different about the following of Jesus, the new Israel that God is leading through Jesus out here in the wilderness. John is a good guy. It's not about being a good guy or a bad guy. It's about the spirit of God is the distinction, is what he's going to say. But John's disciples and the Pharisees, they're actually doing the same thing. They're doing good things but they're just doing it different times than the Jesus' followers are. They're fasting. There's nothing wrong with it. Jesus is not anti-fasting. I hate to tell you. Okay, so uh, there's a part that the sevens in the Enneagram are going to love a part of the sermon, but this is the part maybe you guys don't like, right? That Jesus still, he says, not when you fast, no, not if you fast, but when you fast, do it for God and not do it for man. Do it to be known by God and not to be known by man. Do it in the secret place. Do it in the secret place. That's the difference between the why. But what he's talking about is not the why. He's not talking about the what because he's not anti-fasting. He's not even talking about the who. He's not talking about the good guys and the bad guys. Here's what he's saying. He's talking about the when. When are we fasting? And Jesus says, well, the thing is about my followers, they, they know what time it is. They've got a different chronology going on in the, in the, in the epoch of history. And he's saying, so they, they see it differently than you, and they just have a different season. You wouldn't wear a coat in the middle of July. And if you know this is the right season, this is what you're going to, you're not fasting fasting right now because the Son of Man is here, is what he's going to say. Jesus answers them, how can you be guests of the bridegroom? How can you be alongside the guests of a dude about to get married and decide that it's time to fast? That's wearing a coat in July. That's not the right season. Don't do that, right? It's because they have eyes to see this. The guests of the bridegroom are here and you don't fast when the bridegroom is here. They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will take taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Back then, we used to keep uh, photographs on CDs, which is why I don't have a better photo for you this morning of my wedding day than this one right here. Ooh, Jesus was calling on that one. Uh, There it is, Kyra and uh, myself there, cutting the cake. And 2005, um, um, uh, on, on 14 in Pelham, right about there, the Creekside Plantation is the outdoor wedding. We had a chocolate fondue. That everyone thought they were the only one that put their tongue into it. And uh, then they got the rude awakening that that was everybody's idea. So it was a pretty gross little situation that kind of happened uh, at that particular way. It was a beautiful wedding and a beautiful bride. And uh, me and Kyra have been married uh, for almost 20 years now. Um, so, you know, super happy about that. Um, also, I'm happy that my hair, there's another picture somewhere else in my uh, iPhone where my, I had a very Jimmy Neutron looking kind of face. Kyra looks gorgeous. She looks exactly the same. I very much, hopefully, Went didn't go backwards, at least it went a different direction than I was in 2005. Um, now, at 40, I have the privilege of not just being in weddings, I, I have the opportunity to officiate weddings, which is a really cool thing. Um, because, um, you know, preaching at a wedding is almost the easiest thing to do because the illustration is so obvious. I mean, here's the bride and here's the groom and people are just weeping already. It's like, you can't preach a wedding, you're in trouble. And, um, and so I get to see, like, like everybody else doesn't get to see, I get to see the faces the people that I'm that I'm talking to. And um, I get to see the gasp. Like everybody knows the moment when the bride comes in, but you can be as prepared as you want. There's just like, Brr! like it's just sacred. It's just holy. You know, she comes down there and I've seen all the mother-in-laws. I've never seen a mother-in-law not cry. Moms and the thing, they're just, Brr! dad looks so nervous. His pants, his tux is too tight. You know, he's like nervous about like, who's going to eat, you know, at the dinner, and like, just so nervous. And then you have that wedding planner, and that wedding planner you need, she's cute, but she's bossy, and you need her there because everybody's losing their mind, and they're there to tell you when it's time to dance, and when it's time to eat, and to put your phone away is in the middle of when the bride comes down, right, because the wedding planner is necessary for the chronology, you know, of this event. And so this is what I, what I get from this, is that when Jesus is, is saying, it's, it's, it's not if, right, we should fast, or the good guys versus the bad guys, or spiritual disciplines or no spiritual disciplines, it's about timing. It's about the season that we're in and the eyes to see the moment that they're living in with Jesus in front of them. He's saying the reason, right, the same reason that people would gasp at a bride and cry at the handing off of a father and father-daughter dance, and the reason why we would eat our faces off and nobody should be fasting at a wedding, we should be partying, because everywhere that Jesus went, he brought a wedding. Jesus brought the reunion of heaven and earth. Jesus brought union, you know that, uh, I, I think it'd be hard to lose weight around Jesus. You know, they, you know like, when you, when you follow Jesus, they actually called him a foodie. And not because he lives in Greenville and he likes to eat in fork and plow. They called him a foodie because he's always at parties. They called him a glutton. That was his reputation. And it wasn't because he inebriated himself with food and he stuffed his feelings. You know why? Because wherever Jesus went, there was something to celebrate. You know why they're in Levi's house and they're fussing about the eating? It's because somebody just got saved. Heaven just came to earth. A leper just got cleansed. Somebody draped and cloaked in the shame of the sores of contagious disease of sin in this fallen world. They just got healed. I think we should have something to eat about right now. The reason why we're celebrating is not just because we're like trying to clock out at five and have a good weekend, you know, be a weekend warrior. It's like there's something to celebrate wherever Jesus goes. And so, yeah, he'd be up to fasting. But unfortunately, we're always at weddings. And so you don't fast at weddings. And so we're not fasting right now because now's not the season. Can you blame them for being at Levi's house and raising a toast for this? And so this is what sevens, this is what... Charles Gouch, Christian Walker, okay, Tom Roylston, you can help me, Lauren Evitt, and any of you other seven, Elizabeth, Elizabeth uh, Stewart, y'all can help me preach this, okay, to all those grumpy Christians out here. Remind, help Sevens help us remind. Okay, when Jesus came, he was not headed to a funeral, he's headed to a wedding. Our cross was not a funeral, it was a wedding. Jesus ruined everyone, everyone's funeral that believed in him, including his own, because the funeral actually gave death to death. And he rose from the grave. And so the cute little R Story page on your wedding blog is not like the Israelite Our Story page. Jesus came as a bridegroom because Israel is its bride. But Israel had a history, man. And you and I have a history. Some of, the, some of the most beautiful wedding stories are the ones of redemption. When people are looking off into the distance and I'm seeing them like process weddings, they're really asking, is union really possible? Through all the dating apps and the stupid first dates and, and all the... Miranda of trying to find somebody and then and then do, do you, how do you stay married and all these types of things like is union is love a really a reality is it really possible and Jesus is declaring with his life that the story of Israel is this that that Israel was his bride that humanity itself the way to talk about the gospel in one way divorced God and flirted and not only flirted with but married into sin and and, and uh, married into greed and politics and pornography and gluttony and it just and and not only just flirted with it, got enslaved to sin. It got, in many cases, the Old Testament talks about became a prostitute to sin. So you guys are seeing this new movie, right, about sex slavery and, and the cause of that. You know that, that movie is so stirring because it's actually the gospel? Jesus came into this world to save slaves of all different nations, and not only natures, and not only slaves, but the slave owners. He didn't come to kill slave owners. He came to die for slave owners, and so he comes, and that's what, Mark, the language is so important. He dies for sinners, but he died to ransom them. He paid their ransom with the cost that the enemy think he wouldn't thought he wouldn't pay with his very blood. And that covenant, which he's talking about in this wineskin, is the marriage. And so, sevens, help me out on this. The cross is the wedding. Everything we do down here, if we fast or pray or stress or work or labor, it is not a do and a don't, it's an I do. If we, lose, if we lose sight of the vision, then the, then the price is always too expensive. Is anyone complaining about getting their tux on the way to a wedding? Is anyone complaining about a father-in-law paying the, the bill? To, is anyone complaining about the expense? No, because the, because the reward is worth the cost. And something that I think we need to remember as Christians, like grumpiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Because we are not heading to a funeral, we're heading to a wedding. Our fasting is getting ready for a feast, A wedding. Our prayers are that the kingdom would come, that the wedding is coming, right? Our work and our labor is to get ready for a wedding. Sevens, you need to help me on this, right? The, the, the kingdom of heaven is not to come to bring grumpiness, but joy, because Jesus is leading us to a wedding. And so maybe I'll just, at least at least from a parabolic standpoint, I think it's important, Jesus is always asking that. Like, are you ready for this wedding? That's one of the reasons why we need to think about this sermon illustration. We're not wearing tuxes and dresses. We're wearing, we're, cloth, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way that we get into the wedding. It's not by filthy rags or works or the ways that we work ourselves up. It's because of the invitation. Just by faith, you did that for me. You paid my ransom. I'll receive your ransom for my resurrection. I'm coming to the wedding. Are you working towards, the, are you purifying? Are you working towards purity in your marriage, in your heart? For the Spirit of God is not bossing you. It's nudging you with a whisper. I'm in love with you, and my life is wrapped around, and I do. That's what a disciple is. That I'm not, I'm not running from storm to storm. I'm coming in in one storm and out of another storm. No, it's not about the storm. It's about the wedding. Am I handing out the invitations? This is a multiplying, um, like, guests inviting guests. What do you call it? Crowdsourcing invitation, right? Did you get the invitations out? Have you invited people to the wedding? These are the types of things I think a wedding would bring us vision for. So it's not just the timing, but it's the materials that makes the difference between a Pharisee and a follower. He says, no one sews, you know, silk and leather and polyester and cotton like you can't. You don't do that because when you put them in the dryer, they act different. So you don't put the, you don't put the materials together. So they're, they're cut from a different cloth, these followers are. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will be pulled away, making the tear worse. What he's saying there is that, is that disciples are different from followers, very much different from the followers of the Pharisees, because disciples are made different. They don't just act different; they are different. So I'm going to read a um, couple of rules of the house from my grandma Pat. My grandma Pat passed on. I think she would have been almost hundred. I think in this in this last year. And I'm not going to name all the names of all the sisters of all because the, there's individual rules for each sister. Um, but um, Grandma Pat loved the Lord, and I think prayed. For my dedication. I mean, I think she prayed even though she wasn't my mom. Okay, so Grandma Pat has seven kids. We have four kids. I don't know how she does it, but apparently these were the New Year's resolutions, 1971, for her family (laughs) of things that she wished would happen around the house. Maybe you can relate in 1971 to 2003, maybe not. She invited uh, one of the sisters to stop smoking, burping, and using profane and vulgar language. It made me feel a little bit better from Grandma Pat. I'm like, man, even Grandma Pat's struggling. Uh, number two, respect other people's possessions. Be helpful. Uh, obey the phone rules. Throw away containers in the bathroom. Put your phone up after you. Shut the closet doors. Okay? Uh, next one, stop arguing. Taking the opposite view of almost everything that mom says. Hmm. <laughs> put the phone back after you. Shut linen closets door and bedroom uh, closet doors. Quit making big messes and stop picking up af- and not picking up afterwards. Make your bed every day. Shut the bedroom doors. Hang up and put clothes and possessions. Let me, friend, there's only one boy. Let me see what the boy says do chores without being nagged, <laughs> slash husbands, uh, do chores without being nagged, hang up and put away clothes, shut outside doors, put away your things. And then, and then to the dad, okay, mom says to the dad, go to bed earlier, come home on time um, for supper more often, chew with your mouth closed, take time out to enjoy yourself once in a while, and quit eating before you go to bed at night. I'll take some of those. How many of you guys were convicted <laughs> by some of those things, right? How many guys maybe were a little bit agitated and felt a little bit uncomfortable about household rules? Um, how many guys were, were just encouraged? That, like, thank you. I wish that some of those. I'm going to write some of those down. You know, some of those rules, you know, exist in my house. Um, the interpretation, the experience of the rules has everything to do with the relationship of the person giving it to you. Them. What does it say that if you do rules without relationship, you just get rebellion? And so the rules are not necessary. And rules are not bad, right? Rules are not bad. Like some some people would say, well, I, I don't have any rules. It's like, well, okay. If I just came into your house just smoking and leaving doors open, we'll see how much you like the rules or not, right? You, we don't like other people's rules. <laughs> I don't do rules. Like, well, rules are boundaries on paper. So at least somebody put them on paper. Rules are not bad. The relationship we have with the rules is the thing that makes the biggest difference. And so in Romans, there's actually this evaluation that Romans, the big you know, letter John Martin Luther said, if you were in prison, you had one Bible book, that's what you need. In Romans 6 and 7, it actually explains the relationship we have, not only to sin, we were slaves slave to sin, But also, he's going to explain, I'm just going to read it straight through because it's very obvious off the page, our relationship to rules. When we rebelled against God, we not only married into sin and became prostituted and enslaved into sin, we also became married to the rules. Because those two things actually go together. So this is what it says. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone as long as a person lives. For example, a law... uh, For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and binds her with him. When when Jesus died for us and we we received his forgiveness and were embodied by the Holy Spirit, we didn't just get forgiven, we got made new. We became a new spiritual substance. And so the old man that died did not only die to sin, but also the way he managed it. The way he performed to it, the way he tried to spin it and, and hide from it, and all those things, the old man did not Adam did not only die to sin, he died to the law, the rules that he made to self-justify himself and judge everybody else. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man, while well, her husband's still alive, she's called an adulteress. but if the Adam di- if the old man dies, he's not under the law anymore, because the law is written on his heart, circumcised on the heart. So this is the spiritual gospel application, verse four. So he says, "So my brothers and sisters, your relationship to the law changed. The reason, the reason why legalism exists in any quarter of our heart or any quarter of this country is because without Jesus, who else can we trust but the law to make things right? And so in sin, you were not just married to sin. You were married to the law. You, you were married to it. But now you don't, you're not married to that anymore. You are part of the body of Christ, and you belong. That's marriage language. You belong to his church, and you belong to that dude that got raised from the dead. You belong to Christ in order that you might bear the fruit of God. The, the spiritual fruit that we have is not physical, it's spiritual. And we're, we're having our, 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 our multiplication factor of bearing life is the fruits of the Spirit. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions of, of the law, of the uh, sin, were aroused by the law and led to the fruit of death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, dying to that marriage to the law, we are now set free to not just be single again, but to be married to the Spirit of God. We are, we are released from the powers of the law that serve the way of the flesh, right? and now are released to be married to Jesus and walk in the way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. And so so, so here's here's the pendulum swing. Like, in, in, in in the context of a religious environment, both legalism and lawlessness are both responding to the law. Legalism sometimes looks like a dude just has his doctrine tight and his pants pulled up and he's judging everybody else, right? But legalism is also that prodigal son who runs away from home, right? Because of his fear of God and mistrust of, of God's intentions towards his heart. Legalism can look like lawlessness and it can look like um, licentiousness and, and legalism. And so the way that, 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 that a, a humanity can experience the rules without relationship of God looks like a pendulum swing. It looks like the hot and cold. Some of us in the room, you know, I've heard this story so many times. It's like a lot of times the greatest level of Pharisaicalism that grows in somebody's heart is because they're running from prodigalism in their past. They're coming from a place where they're growing in, in just spiritual just chaos and randomness. And so, and so in running from that pendulum, running into Christ and in Christianity means whatever that is, not that. And running from the ditch to ditch to run from this lawlessness to come into legalism. But the other side of it is true, is that that sometimes, it's like within parenting, as we consider even parenting, it's sometimes the most chaotic kind of hippie environments that we grew up in as kids can swing the pendulum so far that by the time we grow up and have our own kids and set our own rules, we just kind of create Hitler environments, we just create strong structures. So the pendulum, the pendulum of legalism can look like the prodigal son or the older son, It's, it's it's whatever you want. Because rules are not Jewish, rules are human. Rules come from pain and the structure that I want from a humanitarian standpoint to prevent that pain from happening. And so so the gospel is not saying, hey, you grew up in a house with bad rules, go make new rules. It's saying you need a new husband. Because rules are not solving anything. And so just running from ditch to ditch. If I grew up in the hippie era, so I'm going to come over here and be a Hitler. Or I grew up in the spirit-filled crazy church, so I'm going to come and be a legalist church and get my doctrine right. Or I grew up in a legalist church, and so I'm just going to go somewhere where there's no doctrine All of those are legalism. Because humanism is not Jewish. Excuse me, legalism is not Jewish, it's humanism. It's If I don't have anything that can fix this, I've got to fix it for myself. And the only authority I have to do that is to make rules and enforce them. But Jesus says you didn't die, you didn't come to get saved to go make better rules. You came to get saved to be married to the Spirit. You can get a husband to be a, a a lot more engaged with his life and his work through the authority of his wife, right? Than the authorities of sticks and carrots. A wife can give one look to her husband, and he's guided by the nudge. What is it saying about being guided? But you know, the Spirit doesn't have any laws that are those are those are commands of Scripture, because they're relational. And the way that we walk is not through laws and punishment. We walk through the nudge, through the quenching and the grieving of the Spirit. It's not that I just want to get away with what I can do, so that, as long as Jesus doesn't get mad at me. It's like, what does He want with my life? I don't want to do what he doesn't want to do. I don't want to look somewhere he doesn't want me to look. And that's not slavery. That's love. That's devotion. And, and, and so he's saying you don't need a, better, you don't need a better, another better set of rules. You don't need a better culture of values on a, on a screen. You need to get circumcised with the heart, right? Because lovers get more done than doers. And, and, and what we're coming into is not a new set of laws, right, but into the spirit of God to be married to, to Jesus. So not only is the timing different of these disciples, the materials, what they're made of, and because it's like an Amazon box, like the Amazon box hopefully comes on time, and it's got what you ordered, but but if the Amazon box, whatever the contents is, you have to have a good container for it. And if the container's all messed up, you probably broke the contents. So the container's different, and the container is the covenant. Verse 22, and no one pours out new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will be burst, and the skins, and the wine, and the wineskins, they're all going to be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Jesus wasn't anti-fasting. He wasn't anti-rules. He says, if you throw away one of the iota, I came to fulfill the law, is what he says, by putting it in your heart, because lovers get more done than legalists do. And so there's a new, con- there's a new container by which we're going to have to frame this and define it. It's not an old covenant. It's a new covenant. It's not one based on priests and, and all these sacrifices. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And so there's only one command, love others as I love you. It's the new covenant that's made by blood. And so how much, you know, is Jesus anti-drinking? I mean, here's right we're here in the South. Clearly, no. <laughs> Clearly, the illustration of wine and drinking and the last supper, these are all... But it's the, it's, it's the purpose and the container for that drink. And I'd probably just say it this way. I don't think Jesus ever drank. He drank for celebration, not medication. If you're looking for a law about drinking, here's the law. Pick up that thing of alcohol and ask your heart, am I drinking this to be medicated or to celebrate? Jesus never drank anything to medicate. He was never running from anything. He drank because he celebrated. They thought he was a glutton because that's what the religious institution, they couldn't fit him in the box. But he didn't drink to escape or inebriate. He never was drunk. He drank to celebrate. He raised the toasts to the ones that came home. And so, so this covenant that he's breaking is not wine, it's one of blood. The power of the blood of, of Jesus is a substitution and a transformation. It's that he that knew new sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteous God. It means that he not only sees you like Jesus, but he's made you like Jesus. You have a 40-year-old body that stinks and would throw its life away for five seconds of pleasure. You have flesh. You have earth. You have flesh with earth magnets attracted to this world, but inside you are new. Paul says he lives as a struggle between the outer man and the inner. The inner man needs no coaching or no discipleship and no learning. It is new. You cannot like manufacture a baby in a lab, and you can't put the spirit of God in somebody without the grace of God. The spirit of God in you is no more righteous than it is today and will never be as righteous as today. You are righteous in Christ. It doesn't mean that you don't have a battle and a wage of sin and, and all the spiritual darkness, right? But the identity position is you are righteous in Christ. And so therefore, this is the point that I'm driving home, is that followers of Jesus just don't act different because they go somewhere on Sunday. They are different. And maybe you don't Act the way you want to act sometimes, and maybe sometimes followers act more sinful from Pharisees because sometimes fear is a better motivation than love. But in the ultimate, deep, eternal things, you can't change the fact that the Spirit of God is in you. And here's how you know the Spirit of God, right? Because it says that Jesus, Lord, if this is this is my thing to you, how am I a Christian? I mean, that's a big sobering question. Am I a Christian? That's what you might ask yourself. Here's how you know: if you hate Jesus, or you <laughs> if you hate sin, <laughs> hate people that use Jesus' name in vain. If you hate sin. And love Jesus, that can only be the Spirit of God. Are you worried, insecure, struggling with your identity, worried with how God thinks of you? If today, something about sin raises a distaste in your lips, that doesn't come from the flesh. That comes from Jesus. And so if you don't execute that or act like that all the time, or do the, like, that's not, it's not about what you, it's about the identity. If you have a heartbeat, you're physically alive. And if you hate sin and you love Jesus, you're not following Satan, because Satan would never do that. That's the qualification, right, of of what Jesus, he has made you righteous on the the inside. He's covered you in his blood, and you don't just act different, you are different because you have been made new. And so let's go back real quick, because all this comes from from, from the house, the little party at Levi. That's what this is all about. Remember, they're eating and feasting with with, with sinners and tax collectors, and how do you do that? And they just act different and all that. Okay, not breaking the law, but they just act different. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you think that the Pharisees that were sitting at that party knew they were Pharisees? Do you think they're sitting there and they're watching that and they're like, man, I am just a legalist jerk. I don't know the difference between right and wrong. I must not be made on these." Do you think that Pharisees knew that, the, do you think that religious people know that they're religious? We sit here in the South, right? And we, we understand there's religiosity, but it's always from the people down the street. We, we never assume it's us. Oh, we're at the table, right? Jesus says, right, Lord, Lord, many will do great wonders in my name. This is the scariest statement in all the Bible that is a healthy, sober reality, right? Doing different things is not what makes us Christian. Knowing and being married to Jesus is what being Christian is about. That's what, that's what following. It is not about where we go on Sunday. It's not whose friend you are. It's not what leadership position you hold. Do you have the spirit of God and you are not? They act different because they're made different and they're made different because they're made new. And so it's, he, he says it distinctly. Lord, Lord is biblically accurate. Biblical accuracy is not salvation. I've done great things in your name, justice for the poor, doing good good deeds, that's not salvation. He says, we've done many miracles. You know, there's people in the Bible and people now that can do miracles that are not following Christ. They're following the rules, they're not following Christ. None of those, there's only one thing, right? The Spirit and God inside of you and the blood of Christ on you that has transformed you from the, you are either, you're different because you're new, and if you're not new, you're not really different. The only thing that makes us different from the, from the world is Christ. Humans will follow the rules or they'll follow Jesus, right? But there's no in-between. And the only ones, right, that are following into the kingdom, they're experiencing the invitation of the wedding, are the ones that are following Jesus. It's not by following the rules. It's by following Jesus. That's the intentional question. Are we following the rules or are we following Jesus? In our salvation, but also our sanctification on a daily basis. Are we, are we saying no to things just because it makes us feel good or look like we can fit in? Are we saying no for the yes? Have we lost sight of the I do and the do's and the don'ts? Am I here because I see a bridegroom and I'm not running ditch to dish or storm to storm or dream to dream or improvement to improvement? I'm running for the wedding because he's given me eyes for the bridegroom. Am I down here living because of the I do? Am I being guided by the flesh and the spirit? You realize what Paul just said, the flesh is not only the person that drags you down to Vegas, it's also the one that goes to DC and covers it all up. Both of those are the flesh. We need to have recovery groups for alcoholics and legalists. Hi, I'm Oliver. I'm a 17 year old legalist. (laughs) I've been struggling with legalism all my life. Like, that's the temptation being aware of the people that we used to be dating and married to in terms of our spiritual sin. The flesh is me doing life on my own, which runs towards Vegas and runs towards Washington. Am I being nudged by the Spirit? Am I being like chastised and pushed and corralled? Or am I being nudged because the Father is speaking to me by the Spirit of God, not by the flesh? Am I living in a contract or a covenant? Is everything, if if I pray enough, and, and if the church would do it the right way, or if we would preach the right way, as if the finished work of Christ isn't enough, we do not live from a contract, which is the if causality. We live from the covenant, which is the because. Because of the finished work of the cross, the wedding is coming. The wedding is coming. And so I have an invitation for everybody here that's just being invited for the first time, potentially, if you're not a Christian, or a reminder for Christians that are in the room that there's a wedding, and you're invited. I'll invite you to stand uh, and invite uh, elders and deacons and people that are here for prayer as well as the band to come forward to close us. But I just wrote this down just to close as a benediction and as a closing. If you're too scared to get out of the bubble because you don't know if the Spirit of God is going to guide you and is enough to take you step by step, just reminded there is a wedding and you're invited. If you're so safe that you're dangerous and you raise your kids in the bubble and you grew up in the bubble and you don't know if the spirit of God and the kingdom of God is bigger than the church, there's a wedding, not a a Bible school program to get invited to, and you're invited. If your love is cold, and you're ashamed to admit it, and even you hold a, a position in church that you have to pretend like you're happier than you're not, there's a wedding here, and you're invited to it. If following Christ is more of a burden than a joy, if the first word that comes to mind is, I have to do this, so I don't get in trouble, there's something better for you there's a wedding and you're invited. If you are in yo-yo faith of hot and cold because you're running from the legalist and the lawless mentality, there's wisdom and love for you in the spirit of God, you're invited because there's a wedding. For all of the other ones that are disillusioned and angry and nauseous and spiritually upset because of having church without Jesus for too long, this is not about church, this is about a wedding. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.